2: Last week, CMS issued what it thought would be a clarifying memo on total knee arthroplasty, also known as TKA. The problem, the latest memo doesn't clarify, but it only confuses. Standing by to report our least story on TKA is Dr. R. Philip Baker. In other news, Walgreens would pay $269 million to settle two lawsuits alleging it overbilled the government. In a related matter, United Healthcare Services is suing more than 40 drug companies alleging they violated antitrust laws. Whistleblower Attorney Mary Inman is standing by to report on both lawsuits. What is the new healthcare technology that you can expect in 2019? Well, rack Monitor Investigator, Reporter, and New York Attorney Ed Roach will report on one that's getting a lot of buzz, distributed ledger systems, better known as blockchain. Healthcare Attorney David Glazer returns to Monitor Monday. He has another example of the risky business. And Nancy Beckley has all the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hurst, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday.
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all.
3: You know, last week I reported on the QIO short-stay audits and the apparent appeal processing snafus that led at least one MAC to declare they would not be recouping the money on denied claims. Now, if any of you heard that and celebrated with a trip to the mall with your CFO spending that money you expected to be recouped, I hope you kept your receipts. It appears this snafu did not happen at all the MACs, and some are taking back the payments. One hospital reported to me last week that their May 2018 admissions that were denied in September were recouped last week. Next, CMS released the updated version of MLN Matters on the status for total knee replacements, as you heard. And I'm disappointed they did not ask me to proofread it because you'll hear they messed it up again. Dr. Baker's gonna talk about it, and be sure to read Dr. Ugarte Hopkins' article published last Thursday. If no other conclusion can be reached, it's that even CMS gets confused by their own regulations. Next, the MOON form that is presented to observation patients is almost two years old, and the condition code 44 process is 14 years old. But the last month or two, I've gotten many comments about their interaction. What I'm hearing over and over is that when the condition code 44 process is done to change an inpatient to outpatient, the moon is used to notify the patient in writing. The assumption is that because many of these orders are to change the status to observation, the moon will suffice, but it does not. Per 42 CFR 482.30 section D, if the admission is determined to be medically unnecessary, you are required to provide written notification to the patient. It's self-evident that such notification must state that their status of their inpatient admission is changing. Remember, these patients received the important message from Medicare and have appeal rights that are now being taken away. Now, as hard as you squint at the moon, that notice says nothing about the change in their admission status. In fact, many condition code 44 changes happen just prior to discharge when there's no medical necessity for observation services at all. So is it wrong to use the moon? No but you must indicate in writing in the additional information section that their status has changed. If you give a moon, you're obligated by law to orally explain the whole document to the patient. But if they're going home, do they need to know all that? You must also make a copy of the moon for your records. If you're doing a code 44 change, isn't it simply easier to use a templated letter stating their status has changed? There's no requirement for a long verbal explanation. You don't need to get a signature and you don't need to keep a copy. Bottom line,
2: whatever you do, make sure you're doing it compliantly. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And here now with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday. Senior correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy.
4: Good morning, Chuck. And nothing could be... Happier for me to present this morning than the Novitas JL targeted probe and educate therapy results from round one. Novitas was also doing targeted probe and educate in the JH region, but those results have not been posted yet. Based upon their review of 102 therapy claims that were selected for round one, 93% passed the review with a minor classification. I want to make a notation, however, that minor classification included those providers, and I know many, that passed round one with 100%, meaning there were no errors. So if you have no errors, it's classified as a minor classification. 3% of the reviews had a moderate classification, 3% had a major classification, and 1%, meaning in the sample size of 102, had an insufficient sample size. So here are the top denial or partial denial reasons. The old mother load of medical necessity for therapy. Documentation with lacking evidence of either a certified or recertified plan of care and insufficient documentation to support the date of the claim. Um, The education that's provided is actually cut and paste of a good chunk of information from the therapy section of Chapter 15 of the Medicare Benefits Policy Manual. However, therapists although very lucky in this round, really don't want to know this. They already know it. They want to know if a record is denied. What would the provider um, should have written in their record in order for it to be considered medically necessary? In fact, I got so used to this when I was in Florida for twenty some years working with First Coast and give a shout out to their medical reviewers. They always tell you what they should have looked for in the medical record and always give you great examples. So, Chuck, this is great news for therapy providers, and hopefully we'll get the same type of results from J.H. Novitas. Once again, summarizing that therapy providers and Novitas, J.L., um, 93% passed with a, a good round. And we'll now have our round of Monitor Monday survey. And this survey question this morning is courtesy of David Glazer, and this will be a part of his Risky Business segment. When you are running an anticoagulation clinic, is the following statement true? If the patient does not have any new symptoms or require a change in the dosage of his or her medication, the physician cannot report 99211. Check the top one for true. Check the second one for false. And if you don't know what an anticoagulation clinic is, and I don't, please let me know.
2: Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday, senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. And coming up at about uh, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Mary Inman calling in live from London, and Roach, and our special guest, Dr. R. Philip Baker. This is Monday, is January the twenty eighth. It's a snow day for parts of the Upper Midwest. And you're listening to Monitor Monday, stand by.
0: Here's an important question, is your facility among those refunding millions of dollars every year mistakenly believing that refunds are required to be compliant? Whether you have billed under the wrong professional's name, have an unsigned chart, or are missing evaluation and management documentation, there are often solid legal arguments that you do not need to refund money because of an error. Certainly there are times when a refund is appropriate or required, but when you have provided a service to a patient the law does not require a refund for every administrative error, as you will learn from healthcare attorney David Glazer in a new webcast. Join David tomorrow, January 29th, and learn how to protect your well-earned money. To attend, click on the handout tab in today's Monitor Monday.
2: Thanks, Mark Anthony. And remember, you can save 40 bucks when you register for this webcast. Simply enter the coupon code monday and speaking of rack monitor webcast now you and your team can you benefit from more than 50 compliance webcasts when you subscribe to the 2019 rack monitor webcast series and now for the monitor money risky business segment is the aforementioned david glazer good morning david what is risky this
5: morning good morning chuck well as nancy set up for me Um, For years, anticoagulation clinics, which are often called Coumadin clinics, have caused me to scratch my head. So patients taking blood thinners require frequent INR monitoring as the care team balances dangerous clotting with excessive bleeding. So patients are getting frequent lab tests, which are usually monitored by a care team. And the question is whether it's appropriate to bill for a nurse to review the results of the lab test and to consider when um, the nurse considers changing the amount of drugs being taken. As a quick aside, a year ago, uh, new codes, CPT codes 93792 and 93793, specifically for these clinics were implemented. So make sure you know about them. Now, I think most everyone agrees that when the patient's results are abnormal or the patient has a new problem or complaint, it's proper to bill for the nurse's work. The question arises when the results are normal or when there's no change to the medication. The sentence from our quiz, which, as you recall, if the patient doesn't have any new symptoms or require a change in the dosage of his or her medication, the physician cannot report a 99211, may have been confusing, but it's lifted directly from an NGS policy. And I can't tell for sure because of the use of the OR, but it suggests that absence a change in a prescription, billing for the visit is, un- is improper. But I think that the NGS policy isn't consistent with the law. To explain why, let's consider something totally different. So let's say you suspect that you're having an MI. Uh, You go to the ED. We're doing acronyms this morning, apparently. So fortunately, you're the worried well. Um, No heart attack, no drug prescribed, no plan of care is created. You're okay. You walk out with a clean bill of health. Is there a billable visit? Of course there is. Medicare pays professionals to determine that the patient doesn't have a problem, just as it pays to determine that there is a problem. The assertion that you need a positive result or a treatment plan to justify a claim is simply false. Now, I will acknowledge there's a difference between my MI example and the typical anticoagulation clinic visit. Coagulation clinics have multiple visits, and I will acknowledge that at some point there are legitimate questions about medical necessity. Now, a very interesting question to me is whether the patient's ability to manage their own care impacts medical necessity. I would assert it does. There are going to be many patients who are able to manage their INR results after basic instruction from the care team. But many others, particularly seniors, are going to struggle with that. I'm sure most of us have experienced trying to assist a loved one who's struggling to understand a care plan. I don't know any reason why medical necessity analysis wouldn't consider patient-by-patient variation when it determines uh, whether this encounter is billable. So my answer for the quiz would be false. NGS's policy isn't consistent with the law. Now, I've had clients call considering large refunds on this question, and this is a great example of a situation where a quick read of a contractor policy may suggest a refund is necessary, But a careful consideration and good legal advice can help you understand that it's not. So as Chuck mentioned yesterday, um, if you want more money-saving examples, sign up for tomorrow's webinar, and you can do that under the Handouts tab. So Chuck, I'm breaking out of the 80s this week. And no, for real 80s aficionados, that was not a swing-out sister reference. I'm going with a song that's a twofer. Taylor Swift sings about bad blood. Not only does that fit with the coagulation clinic theme, but it lets me mention the book of the same title, Discussing the Theranos Debacle. It's a fascinating and fast read, especially for us compliance types. Many people saw the company's problems, but some powerful people discounted observations from people they considered too young or inexperienced to merit attention. For example, former Secretary of State George Saltz blew off his grandson, who had worked at the company. So there's a good lesson for all of us in the book. And I have to confess, I do like some Taylor Swift songs, even if not that one that much. So here's hoping your INR clinic never says, baby, now we've got
6: bad blood. You know, it used to be mad love. So take a look what you've done. Because, baby, now we've got bad blood.
2: Hey! Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fedrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis, where the temperature this morning is four degrees. What new healthcare technologies can you expect in 2019? Rack Monitor Investigative Investigator reporter, New York attorney Ed Roach, reports on one that's getting a lot of buzz. It just rolls right off the tip of your tongue, distributed ledger systems. You probably know it better as blockchain. Good morning, Ed. Tell us about blockchain.
7: Hi, Chuck. Today we're going to continue our discussion of technologies for 2019. Uh, blockchain. What is blockchain? To really understand it, you need to know computer science terms, such as cryptographic hash not the type of smoke, Merkle trees, not the type growing in Angela's backyard, Byzantine fault tolerance, decentralized consensus, and so on. Blockchain is a distributed ledger system. Think of it this way. When you're born, you get a giant clipboard or ledger to carry around. Every time your health changes, someone fills out a form and clips it to the clipboard. Doctor's visits, x rays, lab tests, insurance claims, temperature, blood pressure, psychological testing, a wearable glucose monitor with 24 by 7 data. By the way, Chuck, 5.5 billion persons today are using wearable biometric devices. Page by page, each discrete medical datum is added to your clipboard, your whole medical history. Of course, this cannot be a real clipboard because by the time you reach maturity, the pile of papers would reach the ceiling. It is a virtual clipboard. A few more details. The very first page is signed with a special serial number. When the next page is added, it also is signed with a special number, but that number is mathematically related to the preceding one. Each time a page is added, its special number likewise is related to the number of the preceding page. Also, with each new page added, someone checks that going back to the very first number, the entire chain of numbers all relate to each other the way they're supposed to. So if a page goes missing, or if someone tries to slip in a page somewhere, then it will be immediately discovered because the chain of numbers will be broken. To read the information, another special key number is needed. So each time someone reads the clipboard, They must record their own unique number in combination with the key this is a record of who has seen the information so if a crook wanted to file a false claim listing you as a patient for a medicare service they would have no way to access your cookboard to commit the fraud and even if they did their number would be recorded next work is being done by the hyperledger healthcare working group estonia is converting to blockchain for its healthcare records. In Switzerland, HealthBank is using blockchain to handle patient generated health data. In the UK, Block Verify is working on the same problem. In the US, the major blockchain targets are clinical trial records, electronic health records, and prevention of counterfeit drugs. The implications of blockchain include regulatory compliance and promulgation of trusted audit trails, universal and interoperable identity management, automatic enforcement of privacy regulations, so-called smart contract rules to govern access, medical device data integration, more patient-reported outcome measures, billing and claims management. Estimates show five-year savings of $97 billion for hospitals alone. In research, it should be possible to view giant amounts of patient data without any compromise of personally identifiable information. Who knows? Patients eventually might be able to take back control of their own data and even charge for its use. Back to you, Chuck.
2: Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Monitor Investigator Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Scientific Intelligence for Veracruz, New York, LLC. And you can read Ed's fascinating reporting on the new healthcare technologies on our homepage, rackmonitor.com. The war on drug continues while Green's has agreed to pay two hundred sixty nine million dollars to settle two lawsuits alleging it overbilled the government. And United Healthcare Services is suing more than forty drug companies, alleging they violated antitrust laws. Mary Inman is reporting on these stories from London. Good morning, Mary.
6: Good morning, Chuck. Last week, the Department of Justice announced the resolution of two separate False Claims Act lawsuits brought by whistleblowers against Walgreens Boots Alliance, Inc., in what amounts to the largest settlement payouts for a retail pharmacy. In the first action, two former Walgreens pharmacist whistleblowers alleged that the company sought reimbursement for insulin pens it dispensed to Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries who did not need them. Walgreens did so in allegedly two ways. It programmed its pharmacy management software to prevent pharmacists from dispensing less than a full box of five insulin pens, even when patients did not need that much insulin. And it enacted a practice of billing federal health programs for full boxes of insulin, even when the government first denied their claims as exceeding the limit of total daily doses that could be dispensed under the program. Walgreens simply stated in its reimbursement claims that the total daily supply did not go over the limit while still billing for the extra doses. These two practices resulted in massive overcharging to federal health care programs, In addition, according to the Department of Justice, this conduct opened the door to potential health care risks and abuse, such as the improper resale of insulin pens on the black market. Walgreens agreed to pay $209 million to settle these allegations, which is the highest False Claims Act settlement involving a traditional retail pharmacy business to date. Whistleblower's whistleblowers Adam Rahimi and his co-whistleblower, S. Christopher Schulte will receive roughly 19% of the share that will go to state governments and are still finalizing an agreement on their share of the federal payout. In the second action, whistleblower Mark D. Baker alleged that Walgreens offered discounted prices on prescription drugs to the public through the Walgreens Prescription Savings Club while billing Medicaid for the higher prices for these drugs. Under Medicaid regulations, Walgreens could have sought reimbursement only at the lowest of certain drug price points, including the price offered through discount programs. Walgreens will pay $60 million to resolve these allegations. These two settlements are the culmination of a six-year investigation by the United States and various state governments into Walgreens' billing practices. According to the settlement agreements for both actions, Walgreens admits, acknowledges, and accepts responsibility for its conduct. Now switching gears from the world of whistleblowers and false claims act cases to antitrust lawsuits against some of the biggest names in generic pharmaceuticals. On January 16th, United Healthcare became the latest major health insurer to sue more than 40 generic drug companies in federal court, alleging a wide-ranging conspiracy to fix prices on scores of generic drugs. Last summer, Humana filed a lawsuit in federal court in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania for similar charges. Both the United Health and Humana lawsuits reference evidence arising from a lawsuit filed by 20 states in December 2012. Sorry, in December 12, 2016, alleging conspiracies by drug companies to fix prices on generic medications. Over the two years since the government suit was filed, the plaintiffs have more than doubled from 20 to 47 states against 16 of the biggest-named generic drug drug companies for price-fixing allegations involving 300 drugs. Among United's allegations is the assertion that executives from major generic drug companies agreed, quote-unquote, to play nice in the sandbox code words for an alleged ongoing anti-competitive conspiracy to fix prices and allocate a fair share in markets for generic pharmaceuticals to ensure profitability and undermine competition. Assistant Attorney General Joseph Nielsen of Connecticut, one of the prosecutors heading up the government probe, recently told the Washington Post that this is most likely the largest cartel in the history of the United States. We will continue to monitor these antitrust lawsuits for Monitor Monday as they proceed. And a special thanks to David Glazer for his shout-out on today's program to Theranos whistleblower Tyler Schultz, who exposed Theranos' fraud and protected his grandfather, board member George Schultz, in the process.
2: Thanks, Jack. Thank you, Mary. That was nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law office of Constantine Cannon, and Mary was calling in from their London office live this morning. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast and first reported by Rack Monitor, CMS last week issued what I thought would be a clarifying memo on total knee anthroplasty, also known as TKA. The problem, the latest memo doesn't clarify, but it only confuses. Here now with an effort to clarify the confusion is Dr. R. Philip Baker. Good morning, Dr. Baker. Welcome to the program.
1: Good morning, Chuck. On January 8th, CMS initially released MLN Matters Article SE 19002, on totally arthroplasty, with a potential for some clarity about CMS's expectations, but multiple inconsistencies in the initial release were identified, in the article was rapidly withdrawn and then re released on January 24th. This article reviews the two-minute rule as well as the case-by-case exception. The article also discusses that these cases are not as to be specifically targeted for review, which is the one good news from this article, but will be subject to review by the BFCC QIOs for short-stay audits. Issues arise in the case examples which do little to further our understanding and raise interesting questions. In the first case example, uh, the patient underwent elective TKA and was placed in observation after routine postoperative care on the day of surgery without explanation as to why observation on the day of surgery was appropriate. To me, the patient would need some medical complication requiring monitoring or treatment separate from the surgery to qualify for observation and this is not addressed in the example. Hyperglycemia developed on post-op day number one, requiring adjustment to medications and a second medically necessary midnight, so approved for inpatient, which I completely agree with that assessment. On the second case, there's a bit more difficulty and this patient underwent elective TKA but had a history of complete heart block with a pacemaker, cardiac disease, AFib, diabetes, and hypertension. In the first article came out on January 8th, this patient initially started out as an inpatient but in the second version, did not do so. Uh, Bradycardia developed on the day of surgery that required what they called urgent evaluation by electrophysiology and correction of a pacemaker malfunction. The patient was changed inpatient for this complication and, per the article, was appropriate for the exception to the two-midnight rule for decompensation of a chronic medical problem requiring urgent evaluation and treatment. Why was this patient not appropriate from the beginning for, compli- for multiple complications was not addressed. In the original article, it initially started out as inpatient. Uh, the other problem is, how do you justify changing the patient to an inpatient admission with no further intervention and discharge after one midnight? This issue was, in, was corrected very easily and didn't require any additional care. What about the COPD patient that has some uh, wheezing post-op and needs a nebulizer treatment or two? The chronic congestive heart failure patient that needs a dose of IV LASIK what constitutes decompensation and urgent treatment. None of these issues were addressed. This article does little to clarify how these cases will be reviewed, and what I think is necessary is that each facility develop a plan they're comfortable with. I do not think that an all outpatient or all inpatient approach is reasonable. Uh, Our process in in our facility involves a pre-surgical risk assessment on all of these cases. If the patient appears to need a post-acute care stay, they start out as an inpatient, But if the plan is to discharge home, they start out as an outpatient. This allows us the first night as an inpatient if we may need to hit the three-day qualifying stay for post-acute care. Case management prioritizes these cases for review on the post-op day one to see where we stand for potential discharge. If an outpatient case does not appear to be up for discharge on post-op day one, they are reviewed and if a medically necessary second midnight is required, they are properly converted to inpatient. If an inpatient case is being discharged on post-operative day one, then we evaluate those cases and they're sent to the physician advisor for review to see if we can agree that they meet under the case exception, and if not, they're converted to outpatient and condition code 44 is done. Unfortunately, it appears that it will only be after several of these cases have gone through audits uh, that we determine what will be denied and we'll have some clarity at that point as to what we're gonna be paid or not paid. So I think at this point, CMS has not clarified anything for us, and we're back to square one.
2: And back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dr. Baker, very much. That was Dr. R. Philip Baker. Dr. Baker is a medical director of case management at Self Regional Healthcare in Greenwood, South Carolina. Thanks again. Nancy, let's talk about the survey results this morning.
4: Okay, Chuck, where well, we're going to be talking about an anticoagulation clinic. As David said, it could be called a Coumadin clinic or a Warfarin clinic, as they call it here in Milwaukee. 30% of our listeners this morning said it was true that um, to report a change of dosage for, cannot report 99211. And 44% of our listeners said it was false, but 25% did not know what an anticoagulation clinic was. David, let's take a quick minute for you to recap the
5: response. First of all, I'm impressed that 44% of our answers had it right, and I wish NGS's statement was as, clear, was as good as our listeners are on this one. So good job, listeners, but I think it's important to remember you don't need symptoms new symptoms. You need symptoms, but you don't need new symptoms or a change in dosage in order to justify a visit.
4: Chuck, back to you.
5: Thanks again. It's going to be a
2: wrap for us, and I want to thank you for being with us today, and special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, David Glazer, Ron Hirsch, Mary Inman calling in live from London, Ed Roach, and our special guest, Dr. R. Philip Baker. We want to thank you for starting off your week with us, and I hope you're going to join me tomorrow for the David Glazer webcast and learn why you should needlessly refund money to the government. Now That webcast is 1.30 tomorrow, Eastern, and remember, you can save 40 bucks when you register simply by using the coupon code... Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Rack Monitor. And Monitor Monday, thank you very much for joining us, everybody.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.